Well, we are nearing the end of 1 John. If you will turn with me to chapter 5, uh, I think uh, we'll be reading verses 14, uh, or maybe not, yes, 14 through 17. I uh, just wanted to give a little bit of the context for verses 16 and 17, which is our text for this morning. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Grass withers, flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's go to him as we seek his insight and wisdom into this text. Father, we give you thanks this morning for your word. Lord, I pray that your spirit, your gracious spirit, the illuminating spirit would open our eyes to see and to understand the words that you have for us today, to know that they are words for us, they are good words, they are words to encourage us and strengthen us. So Lord, be at work, would you fill me with your spirit, would you open all of our eyes and soften our hearts, would you do that for your glory and for our good and joy, in Christ's name, amen. So what do you do? when you observe someone doing something wrong. And at this point, I'm talking about when you see a fellow Christian who's doing something off, that is doing some type of sin. Maybe someone that you know from church or a family member or a good friend. What do you do? You have options. We always have options, right? Right? Not all of them are good, but we do all have options. You know, do you ignore it? You just figure it's not really your business whatsoever to deal with it. Or do you say that you ignore it, but you actually see the little bit on the inside and let your opinion of that person change? Or do you tell someone else about it, otherwise uh, known as gossip? Or do you go to them lovingly and address what concerns you? What, what should we do? It's an important question to ponder. Because this is, we live a, a life in a world and in a church populated by, guess what? Sinners. And this is what John addresses in our text. We saw in 5, 14, and 15 that, that John addressed the nature of prayer and, and the confidence that we as believers have in, in going before God. And now John's going to apply that confidence to a specific, yet still, in some ways, general manner. The sins of fellow believers. Now, to get to this, I believe it will be helpful for us to look at it in two parts. First, what is sin? What is sin? And then secondly, what is our response to sin? What is our response? As I said, this is an important discussion because guess what? It's not hypothetical. This is not a a case study that we just kind of make up. This is is real life. This will happen. 
And this does affect the life of the church as well as the life of the particular sinning individual. We are all called to holiness. And we are called to holiness within a community. Uh, We are called to life in Christ together. So these few verses are both very applicable and very consequential to our daily lives. So look at verse 17. Let's jump down to verse 17. All wrongdoing is sin. First order of business is let's define a few terms. Wrongdoing. Wrongdoing. This is unrighteousness. It is anything that violates standards of proper conduct. It's injustice. Well, then sin. So all wrongdoing is sin. So what is sin? Our catechism has a great definition of sin. I encourage you over and over again, look at our catechism. Get to know our catechism, particularly the shorter. Question um, 14 Ask, what is sin? The answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. So it's not being like it or going against it. And what I want to point out to us in in this definition is that it not only tells us what sin is, but it also defines sin in, in accordance with the law of God. That is what defines sin. It is God's law. John has already mentioned that aspect in his letter. He's addressed sin actually in every single chapter of 1 John. When you think of this letter, you think uh, a book about love, but it addresses sin in every single chapter. And in 3.4, we read, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. And now, at this point in time, we've seen all wrongdoing is sin, sin is lawlessness. You're, You're starting to pick up that there's a range of terms or words that can be used for sin. That can be used to describe sin, transgression, wrongdoing, unrighteousness, disobedience, lawlessness. And in 1 John, one of the ways that it is described particularly is lawlessness and lovelessness. Okay, and lovelessness. One systematic theologian put it this way, love is the fulfilling of the law. Therefore, lawlessness is the absence of love. There is no antithesis between love and the law of God. We've addressed this before as we've looked through that section of of the text, but for something to be truly loving, it has to be in concert with the law of God. Going against the law of God is anti-love. Okay, so for something to be loving, it has to be fitting with the law of God. And so sin is transgression of the law of God. And, and, And again, God is the one who defines right and wrong. It's not society. It is not history. It is not science. It is not majority rule. It is not the uh, the the, uh, a vocal oppressed minority. Now, they may all, at times, say proper things in regard to something that is wrong. And we need to be willing to listen to those things. But the only thing that defines what is and is not sin is God himself. Herman Bavink, a great theologian, wrote, The essential character of sin, after all, is not determined by what was customary or sometimes done in Israel, and I would add, or anywhere in the world, but by the divine law. That is how sin is defined, is by God's law. We get the definition of sin from that based on his holy and perfect character. And further, one thing else that we have to remember is ultimately sin is against God. Even if we sin against one another, it is ultimately against God. Look at David's confession in Psalm 51. 
Now, along with the nature or character of sin, we also need to understand the, the end of sin. What, is the, what, what does it push towards? As in the result of our sin. Now, in this letter, John doesn't tell us explicitly, but he tells us that we all sin, right? We all sin, and and that if we deny that we sin, we actually make God a liar. And the truth is not in us. His word is not in us. We're fooling ourselves. Yet he does tell us, just after that, that Jesus is the propitiation for our sins. Now, again, that's a word we don't use much. We've, we've talked about it a decent bit through 1 John. And it tells us that Christ, uh, as our propitiation, he serves to turn away or to avert or to deal with the, 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 the wrath of God on our behalf. So from that, if you think about that, you can make a very warranted inference that our sins evoke the wrath of God. They demand his wrath. This is a holy and righteous wrath. God would actually not be a good and holy God if he were not wrathful against our sin. If we did not have a God who was wrathful against our sin, we would not want that God. Because he would be good with us defiling a good creation and going against the way we are created. So we want a God like that. We want a God that is wrathful against our sin, who hates my sin more than I hate it. So then, what is the end of our sin? Well, Paul gives us some greater clarity. Romans 6.23, you're probably familiar with it. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The results, so what we deserve or what we earn from our sin, it's death. It's spiritual death. It's separation from the favorable presence of God for eternity. So what is our response to sin? You know, first, first off, what's, what's our personal response to our own personal sin? We did it already in the service, right? We confessed our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We're called to confess, to turn away, to agree with the Lord that, yes, what we did is sin, we repent of it, and we, we turn away, and we endeavor after new obedience. Psalm 32 Verses 1 to 5, this is David again. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And and listen as I read through this, the the number of terms that he uses for sin. Transgression and sin, we've already seen. Blessed is the man against, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in his spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. Again, we acknowledge our sin, we repent, we turn away from it, and we turn to the Lord. But the question now, so we've dealt with kind of what is sin, and how do we respond personally to our own sin? question now that John poses in this letter is not so much what do we do with our own sin right now, but what do we do when we see other people in sin? What are we to do when we see our brothers and sisters in Christ sinning? So look again at verse 16. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, 
not leading to death. He shall ask, and God will give him life. To those who commit sins that do not lead to death, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So there's a great deal in these two verses, isn't there? What we come to first is that John sets forth this very non-hypothetical situation. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, and I'll just stop at that point in time. This is clearly observable. Okay, this is observable. Uh, This is something that we can perceive and see. These aren't sins that are hidden, but those that are done in such a way that others can see them, can perceive them, can observe them. And I think we all understand this. We can picture this, but the question that is posed is, what do we do when this happens? What do we do when we see another sin? John tells us, he shall ask God and God will give him life. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a moment because I realize that there's actually probably a much bigger elephant in the room that we need to deal with at this point in time, and that is, what does John mean by sin that does not lead to death and sin that does lead to death? Here we have words that have troubled believers for far too long. It is, it's almost sad and, and ironic that these verses often shake the confidence of believers in regard to their salvation when John's purpose in his letter is actually to assure them of their salvation, not cause them to be distressed. So we have to think that John believed that these words that he wrote, again, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were actually clear. That his original readers understood what he was talking about. They were not confusing. I like what Charles Spurgeon wrote about this after he talked about people being troubled by these words. He said, There is much in this passage to make us prayerful and watchful, but there is nothing here to make a troubled heart feel anything like despair. There's nothing in here to make a troubled heart feel anything like despair, but it is something to make us prayerful and watchful. So then, what is John communicating? What is he telling us? Let's first tackle the, more, the, the sin that leads to death. What are some options to this? What are some things that he might be referring to? Does, well, one, does the phrase leads to death help us in any way? Okay. In John's writings, it's only used one other time, and that's in John 11 in regard to the death of Lazarus, where they, um, the disciples come up to him and say, well, it's been so long, and he says something like, well, this illness does not lead to death. And that's clearly about physical death. That doesn't seem to be what John is referring to here. Maybe, but it, it doesn't seem to be, because we all die Because of sin, yes, but no matter what types of sin we commit, we will all die because of the sin of our first parents. We all die. That is the wages, that is is the original wage of sin, is that we will all physically die. That's why we move on to eternal life for those who are in Christ. So, what are some other options? Is this some specific sin that John has in mind? If it is, There's not like this one specific thing that that we can find in the book, as far as I can tell. Is it an intentional sin rather than an unintentional sin that the, the Old Testament distinguishes between? You see things in Numbers 15 and other places. 
Perhaps this is maybe more in line with the idea of mortal and venial sins that one would find if, if they're in a Catholic church or in that background. And I'm not an expert in Catholic theology in any way, so I may not have this perfectly correct, but the idea is that mortal sins carry more weight, um, whereas venial sins are kind of a lighter sin. They're a lesser sin. But if that's the case, John would be saying that we should pray for the small sins, but not the bigger ones. Okay? Yet Jesus taught us that anger was equivalent to murder, and that lust is equivalent to adultery. And David, he committed some of the really big sins, didn't he? So did Paul. And yet they were forgiven. So I I don't think that's what it's referring to. Now, could it be that this is referring to a sin that leads to immediate physical death? Okay? And some of you are like, what? Okay. Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira lied to the Holy Spirit and to God. What happened? Dead. Okay, 1 Corinthians 11, the whole talk, he's talking about anyone who takes the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. This is the reason why some of you have, fa- have, have become sick and some of you have even fallen asleep. Fallen asleep doesn't mean you just took a nap, okay? So could it be that? Could it be something that actually leads to immediate physical death? Well, John has hinted at something like this in, his, in, in writings, but I, I don't think there's much in here in our text that talks about that. Maybe it's more in line with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Mark 3, 28 to 30. And this, this seems to be getting us closer, in my opinion, because that's an eternal sin. That's a, a sin that won't be forgiven. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is misattributing the work of Jesus to the power of Satan, which will certainly prevent someone from being reconciled to God. Because if you reject Jesus and his work, you're not going to experience the way, the truth, and the life. So I do think that gets us much closer to what John is talking about here. But there's still a difference. And here's the, here's the cool thing. is I actually think we can determine the answer just from John's letter. The biggest rule in interpretation, the three most important things to think about when we interpret Scripture are these. Context, context, and context. Okay, when we forget the context, we turn our text into a proof text or a pretext for something messed up quite often. Okay, so let's remember the context. Now, prior to these verses in John, which is most of the letter... John has put forth test after test for his readers to help them get to the point of having the assurance of eternal life. Do you love God? Do you love others? Do you obey his commandments? Those things are wonderful tests of assurance of of eternal life. Those are evidences that bring assurance. Along with that, though, he is also warned throughout about the secessionists, those who have left the church, who have left the community. They have left because they have denied who the Son is. They have denied the nature of Jesus. They've denied his truth. That's why we talk about, you know, if you confess that Jesus is the Son of God, is the Christ, or that he came by water and by blood. Okay, we looked at that just a week or so ago. So those who have left are, in essence, 
They have said that they have no need of the atoning work of Christ. They don't actually believe that he did an atoning work in that way. They don't believe truth. Their Christology, their doctrine about Christ is messed up. Okay, our Christology is important. Okay, you will hear many people in our day and age say things like, I believe in Jesus, and they do not mean the same thing somebody from a biblical worldview means. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, a Muslim, Christian scientists. They'll all say, I believe in Jesus. Some of them will even say, I believe Jesus is my Savior, but they don't believe the same things about Jesus. Okay, just a side note there. Our Christology is really important. And what I believe John is addressing then in the sin that leads to death is these apostate antichrists that he's been warning about, that he's been warning against. They have persisted in sin that will certainly lead to death because it's a denial of the only one who can bring life. They persist in it. Not only do they persist in that sin, but they are teaching it to others and trying to draw others into that falsehood at the same time. It's extremely serious. John 8, 24, Jesus said, I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Or back up in 1 John 5, 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Calvin further clarified this. He said, it may be gathered from the context that it is not, as they say, a, a partial fall or a transgression of a single commandment but apostasy, by which men wholly alienate themselves from God. For the apostle afterwards adds that the children of God do not sin. We'll look at this next week. That is, they do not forsake God and wholly surrender themselves to Satan to be his slaves. So the sin that leads to death is that complete turning away, denying who Christ is. So it does fit pretty closely with the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. There's a little nuanced difference there. So we've dealt with that. That's the sin that leads to death. But there is still another issue. Why not pray for those committing this sin? John writes this, there is a sin, there is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. Is John prohibiting prayer here? Is John just being a hard-hearted jerk? As we've established, he's referring to those who have left, those who deny Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God. They're outside of the fellowship of the church. Their hearts are hardened and have been hardened. And there is truth that, that may be difficult to hear in Scripture that sometimes they're hardened beyond the point of repentance. Now, one thing, though, one commentator wrote this, and I thought it was helpful. It says, John simply says, I am not saying that you should pray about the sin that leads to death. He does not forbid praying for those who have left the church and are still in need of God's transforming grace in Christ. That is just not the situation he is addressing here. He is addressing here very specifically those who have left who are apostate antichrists who are teaching falsehood and trying to lead the people of God astray. 
if we think about it, even Jesus in John 17 prayed a discriminatory prayer, didn't he? He said, I'm not praying for the world. I'm praying for those that you have given me out of the world. And, you know, perhaps John is saying very clearly, don't pray for the false teachers who have left the church and are seeking to convert those and lead others in, into this falsehood. But I would say this, I'm not inspired by the Holy Spirit, you're not either, to write Scripture, and I would rather not be rash in my judgment about somebody and pray and err on the side of prayer than not. At least that's where I fall, okay? I would rather do that and pray for God's irresistible grace to be at work, because if I, if I had met somebody like Paul, Saul of Tarsus, I would have thought, there's no way. That's a different situation. It is. This is a specific situation that John is addressing here. But what is extremely clear, I think, in this text is that we're called to pray for the brother or sister that we see committing a sin not leading to death. And honestly, I think you could just say committing sin. <laughs> Let's just, if it confuses you in that. And then John tells us, he shall ask and God will give him life. We are to be concerned and prayerful about the spiritual status of fellow believers. Again, Calvin, who is a theologian with a great heart, tremendous heart for God, he wrote this, John would also have us to regard the falls of the brethren as stimulants to prayer. And surely it is an iron hardness to be touched with no pity when we see souls redeemed by Christ's blood going to ruin. So I asked the question at the beginning, what should we do? <laughs> Hopefully it's really obvious what we shouldn't be doing. We shouldn't be gossiping. We shouldn't ignore it. We shouldn't do nothing about it. We should pray. It would be absolute hardness of heart to not be touched with pity and driven to prayer when we see brothers and sisters in Christ engaging in what leads to damage and ruin. John has sought mightily to encourage believers, to bring assurance of their salvation. And, and guess what? We should really enjoy that assurance. We should absolutely enjoy our assurance, but that enjoyment of our, insurance, of our assurance should never, ever, ever, ever lead us to a myopic preoccupation with our own spiritual lives to where we forget about everybody else. Don't do that. Our duty in love, and John has talked so much about love for fellow believers in this letter, is to care for those in need, to love them well. And that need, you might think, okay, I'll, I'll deal with their physical needs. I can help with that. And that is one way to help. We need to help with physical needs. It could be a need for work or food or care for them in certain situations, a, a new baby, sickness, any of those kind of things. But it may also, and it will, likely very often be spiritual need. As John Stott wrote, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin, he cannot say, am I my brother's keeper and do nothing? We can't do that. 
That's damaging the body. Imagine if you, you hurt your arm and you just say, okay, whatever. You just don't care about it. And eventually it's limp and dead. Let's not do that to brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's care for one another. So let's pray. And it says, the Lord will give him life. And the kind of life I think we're talking about here uh, is, is really that, that God will give what is promised, that resurrected life in Christ. Because every believer has life already, but he's saying, yes, God will surely give that. God will follow through and give that promised life, give the abundant life that Jesus talks about, the, the life to the full. Folks, this is what John is exhorting us to this morning and in all of life. Just prior to these verses, again, he encouraged us that our prayers can be made with confidence, that that we should go before the Lord in boldness and in confidence. We can pray and we must pray according to God's will. You know what is God's will for our lives? Our sanctification. I can say that with 100% certainty. This is the will of God, your sanctification. That's your growth in holiness, your conformity to Christ, your becoming more and more holy. That is the will of God. If we can pray with confidence according to the will of God, that is something that we need to be praying for one another. And when we see people doing things opposed to their sanctification, pray for that. We have to pray for that. But clearly, one thing I want to say, John doesn't talk about it right here. But according to Scripture, prayer is not our only response to sin in somebody else. To sin we observe in somebody else's lives. We also have an obligation. To, we, we do have that obligation to pray. But we have an obligation to go to them privately and share our concern and, and our heart and, and Scripture with them. I know that to some of you that sounds like the most daunting task in the world. But it's what we're called to. Out of love. And and I hope that anybody in here that somebody would come to in love and in humility saying, hey, I've, I've seen something that really concerns me. And this is why, this is what I see in Scripture. I hope that anybody in here would go, you know what, thank you. And receive that with humility. You know, that person might be off who comes to you. They might. But whoever is, has that brought to them, you have a responsibility to listen in grace and listen with humility, willing to be broken and contrite over what has been said. Let's do this in love. Do this because we love. Do this because this is the community of Christ. We support and encourage our brothers and sisters in Christ. So just wrapping up, as we consider this text, one thing I want us to remember is this. Sin is destructive. Do not trifle with sin in any form. Okay, it is destructive and dangerous. We must take it seriously in ourselves, get the log out of our own eye, and in others. Sin can erode the fellowship of the church. It will blemish the integrity of the church and the record uh, with with the community uh, around us. 
We are called to live blameless. We are called to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to grow in holiness. That doesn't mean sinless, but blameless and and in holiness in that we repent and we turn. We live the life of faith, which is repentance and belief. Repentance and belief. And a place where we care for others, okay? And I'm not calling it, listen, I'm not calling us all to now all of a sudden turn into busybodies who are watching everyone like a hawk. And, and if they violate your own personal standard of conduct, you're like, I'm going after them. No, that's not what I'm saying. Okay? I'm saying in loving concern, because you have read the Scriptures, you have sought God's heart, the Holy Spirit is guiding and leading you. We care for one another. We pray and ask God to work. We do this because we long for ourselves to be conformed more and more to the image of Christ. And we long for that for others. And we long for God to be glorified. We long for everyone to truly experience the power of the cross, the power of Christ in their day-to-day lives. This is what we are called to. This is the reality of the beautiful community of Christ. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you are good. And you are so good to give us words to encourage us, to direct us, to teach us, to lead us, because we need that instruction. We are too often sinful and often tired and sometimes lazy and sometimes indifferent human beings. But Lord, by your Spirit, encourage us and strengthen us to be the people who love and care for for one another because we love you so desperately and we seek to obey your commands as John has laid out so clearly for us in his letter. So strengthen us today for your glory and for our good and everyone's good and joy. In Christ's name, amen.